Hello and welcome to Pocket Therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Adam Moore, licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm going to teach you everything I've learned over the last 13 years as a therapist to help maximize the value you get out of your relationships. Welcome back to Pocket Therapist. This is the follow-up episode with Dan Solon. And uh, we are, what are we talking about, Dan? We are talking about the, <laughs> what is it, the polyvagal theory, yes. the idea of fight or flight and being flooded and how that affects our ability to resolve conflict and just how to manage stressors in our life. Awesome. Okay, so we got into a lot of the science last time and started giving some examples of how this works. And uh, so today we're going to be talking more about the practical application of how to get out of some of these situations, shift uh, your your physical, your mental experience so that you don't get flooded and lost and all these things and uh, and have all of the problems that come with uh, <laughs> for not being able to manage this, which is so many people in life. So many people don't understand any of this and are replicating situations over and over again in their marriages, their parenting, and they go, I don't know, we always do the same thing, right? Well, and real quick before we move into, I have one addendum to make to last time. I realized I said that the uh, vagus nerve connects the limbic system and the kind of that reptilian part of the brain down into the heart and stomach, but actually the vagus nerve network goes through the whole body. There just are a lot of extra connections between the stomach and chest and cool. mind. So if there's some anatomy people out there and neuroscientists, they probably are. They were upset by yeah. the, <laughs> the we're inaccurate gonna... representation of science. <laughs> yeah. I always tell my clients, I go, look, I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm about to try to explain something about the brain. It could be wrong, but I'm doing my best. That's right. It's, and that's the difference between psychologists and therapists like us is that we do more of the applied work. They do the research and right. we're going to get some of those details messed up. But the the advantage is we actually know how to help you change your life. Right. <laughs> we, we may not know, fully know all of the science behind it, but at the end of the day, when you leave, something will be different and better. And that's what I think for most people that matters more than knowing the science, certainly. Yeah. So really quick as we start, we just want to review again this, this idea of the window of tolerance. Remember, we have this autonomic nervous system, which largely exists outside of the conscious mind. We're not able to control it by thinking. This is more of our fight or flight response. We know that our sympathetic nervous system will arouse us, meaning cause us to go into fight or flight. And that there's this magic place where once we have enough of this stressor, enough arousal that we're more motivated to work on things. When we get too much of this uh, adrenaline and other hormones kicking through our body, we become flooded and our prefrontal cortex, which is our logical brain, shuts down, and then not a lot of good happens when we're flooded. If that fight or flight fails, or we have an overactive parasympathetic nervous system, we can drop into what's called freeze. And this is where we disconnect from our body. People often describe it as that during the headlight look, they're not there, they're kind of like, you know, disassociated. And that's not very effective either for getting things done. And so with that in mind, what we want to talk about is uh, what do we do when you're flooded? How, how do you get out of that? And then we can maybe talk a little bit about what do we do when you're in that compartmentalized, disassociated state. So, okay. Flooded, I think last time we talked a lot about what those symptoms were. Yeah. 
and maybe we should maybe we can give a few examples so people can identify with situations in which because people may be listening going i don't even know what that would mean in my own life mm-hmm. what are some examples of situations in life where people get flooded so like i'll think of some examples in my own life when i feel like i get i get flooded um often if i it's funny because i i feel like i need to-do lists to help organize me but then a very large to-do list Mm -hmm. i start looking over it and i'm like i'm dead i i have 24 hours to do all this and this is 47 hours worth of work and so I just go, ah, I don't know what to do. And I start panicking. And, mm-hmm. and then, of course, then I'm not very productive and self-fulfilling okay. prophecy. I get nothing done. And what's really interesting is when I have similar experiences, I go to the opposite, which is the freeze, mm. where I feel so overwhelmed I don't do anything Yeah. at times. Sometimes I go to f- that fight mode. Right. So that would be an example of that fight response in you where it's like, hey, I have to get this all done. I bet you're very irritable at those times. I bet you. Right. I want everybody to leave me alone so I can be efficient and get things done. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, maybe I would go to flight where it's like, eh, I think I'll just watch. uh, I mean, is that, I mean, what's the difference between flight and freeze? If I go to binge watch Netflix when I, after looking at my to-do list, is that flight or freeze? Which, which one is that? No, it seems a little bit more like flight to me. Yeah. I'm I'm running away from the thing. The freeze would just be staring at it for an hour and a half and going, I don't even know what to do here. Yeah. Okay. More of that shutting down. Yeah. And then being like, wow, I just went through my in my head 50 times what it's going to be like to fail. Yeah. <laughs> and two hours passed. Here's, here are all the horrible things that are going to happen when I don't do anything. Yeah. I think a really common one, too, is interactions with our spouses or partners who are like, wow, I'm going to be rejected. That often triggers a fight or flight response. This goes back to like 300 years ago where if our tribe kicked us out, we essentially would live alone in the wilderness and die. And so now we're really um, wired to be attuned to rejection and feeling like we're not going to fit in, that somehow we're not enough. So something like our spouse, feeling like we're uh, not getting the right gift for our spouse on our anniversary, that could kick people into fight or flight. Well, you know what's really funny, speaking of the rejection thing, I mean, I've noticed, and this is so dorky, but it just is what it is. I've noticed that if I'm really excited about something I post on social media and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, everyone is going to love this. This is going to go so great. And then I get no likes or, you know, no comments or anything. I have, I have this weird experience where I'm like, oh my gosh, everyone decided I'm an idiot and they all hate me now. (laughs) So, you know, even, even a situation like that where it's on something that seems as innocuous as social media can really kick people into that panic mode. Like maybe I shouldn't have posted that. I might have mm-hmm. offended people. What am I thinking? I make bad choices. No one likes me. That kind of stuff, I think. There's some risks there for people. Yeah. And often we see the addictive behaviors or compulsive behaviors or flight responses. It's an attempt to calm people down or right. get away from those emotions or the problem. Right. So, for sure. So, okay, Um, there's some examples. I think most of the ones we deal with in therapy, obviously, are people avoiding interactions with spouses or partners or family members or those interactions causing them to go into fight or flight. And then we are doing therapy to resolve the aftermath of some fight response or some flight response. And we'll often see that fight or flight in session or freeze, right? Right in front of us happening right there. Do you point it out to people in session? Yeah. Do you say you're in fight, flight, or freeze right now? Or Yeah, I find that very effective often because um, if we don't address it, it seems like often we're not actually able to fix the problem. I mean, if we're arguing about 
you know, which way the toilet paper goes in therapy. Mm -hmm. It really has very little to do with which way the toilet paper goes. It probably has more to do with how do we bring up issues in marriage? How do we say things matter to me? And how do we, you know, work through that conflict together? And so usually that fight or flight response we're seeing in therapy is mimicked in those other relationships. And that's actually what's preventing the people from talking through it. I mean, which way the toilet paper goes in the end is irrelevant. Well, I mean, not really, because it clearly goes top to bottom, but (laughs) it should be irrelevant to everybody else as long as they do it my way. We we should be fine. That's right. (laughs) All right. So let's maybe first talk about that flight or that fight response. Then we can do flight and then we'll do freeze. So fight response often feels like um, probably rage, anger. You're going to tend to feel it probably in the chest. You're going to feel that blood flowing into the arms and legs. And you're probably going to hyper-focus on what you perceive as the threat. So often you're going to see a lot of uh, focus on that issue. And so you'll see this a lot where other experiences get kind of locked out. Because the brain does what it's supposed to. It says, I'm going to die. I'm about to be eaten by a bear. Let me hyper-focus on this one detail. So it's like, you never take out the trash. Mm. And then our response usually is the spouse would be to say something like, what are you talking about? I took out the trash 20 minutes ago. Yeah. You literally watched me walk out the door with a bag of trash in That's my right. hand. Which amazingly doesn't actually do much in that situation for, for solving the problem. People think, if I can just tell you the facts of what occurred, yeah. then everything will get better. But it doesn't. It actually can make things worse. That's right. Because in that moment, that fight or flight is kicking in and it's focusing on what it perceives as that life-threatening issue. I know, and that sounds so silly as we say this. You're probably thinking it's not a life-threatening issue, but the brain thinks it is. Right. And and so really that emotional brain is so hyperactivated that trying to use logic on a part of the brain that's shut down, that that prefrontal cortex is not online anymore. It's not listening. Right. That emotional brain that keeps you alive, that engages in fight or flight is. And so it's going to focus on that detail, what it perceives as the threat. So anytime you start hearing someone else use always or nevers, you know that they're in fight or flight in that moment, most likely. They're hyper-focused. Yeah. And there's a pretty good chance they're in fight. Yeah, most likely. (laughs) So if you feel yourself saying that or you notice yourself saying that, if you notice that anger, if you notice that almost that, uh, I don't know, that activated physical state, you might feel a headache. You might feel very enlivened. You might feel um, uh, what would be some other A lot things. of my clients will talk about they, they can feel their fists clenching. Yeah. Like it's like they're ready to take a swing at somebody. Mm-hmm. Or your legs start bouncing or you feel just the muscles in your legs flexing. Those are chances you're in that fight or flight response. Right. Um, things to do. I remember me being in therapy one day and the therapist was like, hey, best case scenario, fight or flight kicks in. And you walk away from the situation where you're no longer getting triggered or reminded of what your brain perceives as the threat. 15 minutes, best case scenario before you are calmed down. 15 minutes. Yeah. Best case scenario. That's, that's like way longer than count to 10. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so most likely if you can count to 10 and calm back down, you are still in that window of tolerance. You're just kind of getting up to the top of it. Gotcha. Yeah. If, so if you do the count to 10 and you're still not calming down, that's probably a good chance to walk away, to mm. go do other things. Now, you can't think yourself out of fight or flight. This is really important. What's about to be said is mission critical here. That's you right. cannot think yourself out of fight or flight. No way. And so 
you probably actually have to go do something somatic. And what somatic means is body related. This means you're going to have to focus on your body because remember your limbic system is triggering this fight or flight response. This autonomic nervous system is kicking in and you can't outthink it. And so this is where a lot of this treatment is going to be very physical in nature. This is where deep breathing works. So for example, every time we breathe in, we activate that uh, fight or flight or that kind of that sympathetic nervous system, mm -hmm. which causes the arousal to go up. And every time we exhale, we activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which calms us down a little. So we know that if you breathe in for like a count of two, then breathe out for a count of six, you can actually slow down your body and pull yourself out of fight or flight. And there's a bunch of research showing that just a lot of those deep breathing exercises, like breathe in for three, hold it for three, breathe out for three, mm -hmm. hold it for three, things like that will just pull you out of that fight or flight response. So sometimes I've got clients that are like, I feel like I need to hit something. And so they have a punching bag and they're, they're in, you know, fight. And so what they want to do is hit stuff. When they go down to the basement and start punching and kicking the punching bag, what happens? Does that help? Does that make things worse? What, what goes on there? Well, let's turn it back to what your clients have experienced. What has their response been? Uh, it, I think it kind of depends. A lot of times it can amp things up initially because they're actually, they're engaging in the fight, you know, yeah. and they're getting, they're getting more and more angry and it's getting worse and worse for them. Sometimes eventually if they're there long enough and may, maybe they forget that they're also sitting there breathing in between <laughs> rounds of punching and kicking. Uh, but you know, they can eventually calm down. It doesn't necessarily solve the problem for them. So it's like it didn't fix the marital issue that went on, but a lot of times they they just feel like they're like, I just need to get out all of my energy yeah. that's in there. Exactly. That fight or flight juice is in there where it's meant to make us run for about 15, 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. That's about how long fight or flight's meant to last. Okay. So you need 15 to 20 minutes of, of slamming that body bag or the body bag. The, the punchy bag. <laughs> it's, getting, it's getting weird in here. <laughs> Client works in a mortuary or something. You need 15 or 20 minutes of hitting the punching bag before you can expect to see a reduction in the fight or flight response. Yeah. This, this is often where like, you know, guys have their man caves and they're like, I'm mad. And they go work on their motorcycle or go mow the lawn or something. I, I think when I find myself in fight or flight, like I do the best like project work when I'm in fight, mm -hmm. get like three hours done in an hour. Yeah. <laughs> You're really getting the, the, it's that physical energy that you need to get out. Yeah. You need to use those arms and legs. You need to engage in this activity, going to the gym, um, literally going on a run, especially when people are in flight state. They feel like running can really help them kind of work out that, uh, that natural, those hormones in the body. Now, let me, let me throw this little uh -huh. wrench in the works. Cause this is so important. A lot of our clients are married to people where when they say, I need to go take a 15 or 20 minute break so I can calm down. The other person perceives that as abandonment. Yeah. And so they're like, no, don't you dare leave. And the person's like, no, I really need to calm down because what I want to do is take a few swings at you right now. It would be better for all of us if I, if I took a break. And I think a couple of things, one, often mm -hmm. they don't come back. They're like, I need a 15 minute break. And then it turns into a 15 week break and they never come back. And so the person's like, no, if you leave, we'll never come back to it. Mm -hmm. But then the other, you know, like I said, the other issue is that a lot of times that spouse or the partner will say, um, you leaving, even if I know you're trying to calm down, it makes me feel like you're abandoning me, like you don't care. You know, that's that 
makes things way more complicated. It seems easy to say, oh, just take a 15 or 20 minute break, go punch something or just go breathe for 15 minutes. But in a relationship dynamic, that's not always an option that, that doesn't raise the flag of war. Yeah. Right? And I think this brings us into attachment styles, which there's no way we're going to be able to address today. But how people perceive attachment and, you know, if someone has that, you're abandoning me, if you leave mentality, what they really need is reassurance that you're in it for the long haul, you're taking a break to come back. We find that if you even use those words, I am flooded, I'm no longer in my window of tolerance, and I need to leave for 15 minutes so I can come back and we can resolve this and we can work through this or we can at least get to the next step of working through this. Maybe we can't resolve it in one right. sitting, but I'm in this for the long haul. That alone, I think, helps, uh, what'd you say? Yeah, kind lower of, the anxiety of the other person. Yeah, comfort that wound for the other person. I find just that language of, I'm out of my window of tolerance, I'm flooded, I need to leave so I can get back into my window of tolerance. I, this is important to me too. That really helps make it not feel personal and right, to really just acknowledge that this is our body functioning, functioning the way it should and we're not somehow broken or weak or uninvested. And I think most of the time people will say things like, I'm sick of this or I can't handle this anymore. I'm tired yeah. of you. And so that just eggs that on, that fear that they are leaving. I'm sick of this means I'm sick of us and I'm out of here. So I like that idea of using, that's a surprising language. You know, you would never, no one would ever use that language if they weren't trained in it. No one would ever say, I'm out of my window of tolerance. You know, that's just not something people teach. So to say that would be kind of shocking to the brain. Like, oh, I need to pay attention to that phrase because that that's not something I normally hear in the rest of life, which could help the person go, oh, hold on, hold on. Because because most likely both people are actually in fight or flight simultaneously. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We have these wonderful things called mirror neurons in our brain, which when we see other people experiencing emotions, we tend to fill them with that person. And so most likely as the other person escalates, we escalate. Right. And so, yeah, I think that's very important. And, you know, I'll be honest with you. I think there's a lot of therapy work done and how do we get to a point where we can work past some of those belief systems so we can take those breaks because the last thing we want is for us to now spend the next three weeks in therapy talking about what happened in those five minutes you were in fight or flight right versus actually getting back to the core issue of hey how come you guys are getting to fight or flight what's triggering this so right that's pretty important well and like you said earlier i mean you can't think your way out of those situations so Really, the key work happens. I think there's two things. One of them is you have to have an immediate automatic response when you notice fight or flight so mm -hmm. that you can just jump to it. Because otherwise, if you have to think about it and be like, oh, what should I do? Forget it. It's never going to happen. And maybe even more important than that is how do I recognize signs that I'm heading in the direction of fight or flight mm -hmm. so I can stop it long before I get there? Because I know that too. I mean, I'll, I'll be in fight or flight fight, for example, I'm in fight and I'll be saying things to the other person I'm talking to that I don't even believe. I'm, I, I'm saying things and I'm, and I'm saying, well, you, you're like this. And my brain's going, you know what? You don't even believe that. Why are you saying that? But I can't help myself. Yeah. It comes out anyway. And so then I'm like, well, that's an apology later. Yeah, but <laughs> right? And so in order, it, for me, I have, to, I have to go way upstream, as we might say, way before I get down to that point, the point of no return. 
Otherwise, forget it. There's a point at which I, I lose my capacity to make a rational decision. I think most people are like that. Maybe everyone's like that. Yeah, I agree. And uh, again, this will kind of come back to our last episode, which talks about how to identify fight or flight in ourselves. And really, if I could give you one homework assignment as a listener up to now, it would be start to identify what your fight or flight looks like. And if you have questions about it, ask your family. They'll be really good at helping you identify They'll know. this. What do I do when I start freaking out? <laughs> yeah. Or what are the patterns in my family of origin? What have I learned? Because often that, while it's not true, there's it's not always nature. There's often a high part of or a high level of nurturing that creates these behavior patterns. For sure. Okay, so that's that's our fight response. Flight response is a little bit the same, and it's I need to leave. I need to run away. I can't feel safe till I'm away from the situation again. And so, again, we talked about running or doing, you know, meditation or those breath breath work, those types of experiences. Um, It might also be leaving and going and talking with someone saying, hey, I'm having these tendencies to avoid these behaviors. And then probably before coming back and working with your spouse or partner or family member, whoever else you're engaging in fight or flight with, really identifying what is it I'm afraid will happen. What's the thing that my body's telling me I'm worried about, that I won't be heard, that no one will care, things like that. And I find that usually this is more of the avoidant attachment style pattern, which we're not going to get into a ton here. Another day. Another day. The more people can identify like, hey, here's what I'm afraid of happening, just stating it before jumping into the conversation often does a lot to avoid that fight or flight response. Right, because, because if the relationship has enough goodwill built in, then if somebody says, what I'm afraid is if I stay in this conversation, I'm going to end up looking stupid or you're going to make me feel dumb and then I'm going to cry and then it's we're just going to repeat that same pattern and, and I'm going to feel like I don't matter anymore, or whatever that is. Then if the person has enough goodwill, the other person, they can say, oh, look, I don't mean to do that. That's not what I want to have happen. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to go there. And that can de-escalate. If you start feeling like we're going there. We'll just let me know and we'll take 10 deep breaths and our three really slow breaths and then we'll keep going. Right. We'll repeat or kind of go back. And that's a big one. The other thing I think you brought up earlier is really important is if you're that person who needs the flight, like really setting a time to come back to it's pretty important. And that doesn't mean like, hey, we're going to come back to it and go at it for another five hours. It might be like, hey, let's come back. Let's try it. If both of us know that anytime we go into fight or flight, we can call break and we'll come back to it later, that actually really helps the conversations to not escalate as much. Because usually the pattern we have is one person's like, hey, every time I bring stuff up, you want a bell. And the other person's like, well, because every time we bring this up, the conversation goes three hours and it's 11 o'clock when we started and I have to get up at 530. And so, of course, I want to get out of the conversation. And so really it comes down to like this lack of being able to negotiate time and uh, really just kind of this long-term commitment to resolving issues. And so if the person who's bringing up the conversation is like, hey, you can take a break at any time as long as they know we're going to come back to it, that usually helps them not to feel like they have to keep going and going and going. Right. And then the person who wants to usually flee, if they know they can stop the conversation at any given time, they know they don't have to constantly be looking for the out the whole time because they can at any time say, okay, break, I'm flooded. Too much. Yeah, yeah let's take a break. And, I, and I, I think one of the biggest issues, and I can't remember if I've mentioned this in a previous episode or not, but I think one of the biggest issues couples run into is 
one or both people believe that they have to solve the problem right now. So the conversation we're having is like make or break of, of the relationship. We're, we are gonna we're gonna solve the problem. We're gonna come up with a solution right now, and we can't finish until we're done. And I will typically tell couples if you can break up your conversation into two types of conversations, and I, I learned this from a, a marriage book. There's problem description and problem solution. Okay, or or maybe even better than problem solution is you know solution generation. So mm-hmm. problem description is we're not we're not evaluating ideas. We're just saying what is the problem? What's the problem from your perspective? What's the problem from my perspective? We're not evaluating whether your perspective is accurate or whether I have the right facts or anything. We're just describing it. And if we can completely separate out that out by at least a day so that everybody can sit in it and go, let me see if I understand this from a, a different type of conversation, which is generating possible solutions mm-hmm. to the to the problem. And again, typically with my clients, I say in the very first part, we want to get as creative as possible. And you don't want to shut the creativity part of your brain down by evaluating every single thing that popped out of your mouth. Just have every idea possible out there, even the craziest ideas. Let's move to Bermuda. That should solve our problems. And we don't evaluate it. Then we can get those creative juices flowing and people go, oh, this isn't about being right or wrong. It's just about being creative and solving the problem. I find that couples get past some of these conflict areas more easily when they know that they have plenty of time to try to work Mm -hmm. things out and it doesn't have to be done today. And that only works when you don't, you know, I mean, there's certainly there are times when something has to be decided today, but if you got, if you're getting to that point often, then you're obviously avoiding conversations when they should be happening in advance, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I like that too, because I think most of the time we get information and we do need some time to sit on it. I often tell clients like, I don't have the answer right now. I need to think about this or, huh? Um, well, it was kind of chew on this for a little bit of time. And then yeah. you just like two or three days later, I'm sitting there in the gym or out weeding or something. And then that thought comes into my head without me even thinking about it. And I'm just like, oh, this is what I need to do. Or this will be the thing I want to pursue. And so I find that just letting the subconscious deal with it in the background or giving it a couple of days to rest and get out of that fight or flight response allows us to approach it completely differently. Okay, so, so time. So time, time is a big – time and space are really yeah. important. Right? I agree. Yep. And our last thing here we're going to move into then is freeze. And then we're going to talk about after that a little bit of what can I do in the, in the intermediate to strengthen my brain to increase that window of tolerance. So it's bigger and bigger. I can spend more time in it. And we can talk about some of those exercises. So with freeze, often what happens is when that fight or flight falls, people go into freeze. Pretty much their brain saying, you're going to die. This is hopeless. And so often if you notice your spouse or partner going into freeze, it probably means at this moment they're feeling like they don't have a voice. They're powerless. Nothing they do is going to work. And yes, we just use nothing because they're in that fight or flight response. That's exactly what they're thinking. That's right. And they're not even thinking that literally because they're in that fight or flight response. It's that limbic system kicking in. So then right. you're going to ask them, you have that deer in the headlights look. Are you even going to like talk? You're just going to look at me all dumb, which right. further pushes them into fight or flight. And then they're going to look at you and it's literally going to take them two minutes of staring at you to even pull out of fight or flight or out of freeze. I'm sorry. And I'm one of those people who goes into freeze sometimes. And so I, I can experience it. It's like my brain shuts down. It's like even formulating a thought takes so much extra energy and time. 
And it's almost like I have to change the subject for a minute. I remember sitting there in therapy one day and we were about to do some EMDR for me. And like, I was like, whoa, 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 I'm going into freeze. And I could feel this. And I said, we just need to change the subject for like 45 seconds and talk about something completely unrelated. And we were able to do that. And I remember having that, you know, experience and going, wow, that's really interesting that that just happened. But mm-hmm. I could I could feel that fight or flight slash freeze response happening in that moment. Yeah. So, um, so with freeze, when you see your partner, some tips to remember is they probably need help getting out at that point. Right. <laughs> Nothing's going to happen. You can probably talk an hour and they're just going to sit there and look at you and they're not going to compute much because their brain is kind of disconnected from their body. They're in this state of I'm preparing for death. I'm numbing out from pain. They're not really feeling emotions at that point very strongly. And that's, and like people will then talk at the person for two hours straight and they go, are you even hearing anything I'm saying? Do you even care that I'm upset? Yeah. And and what they don't understand is, you know, they're, they're the, uh, they're the antelope just lying down waiting to get eaten. Yeah. And at that point again, it's, Hey, I can see you're really, um, frozen and it's that same type of thing. Take a break, do other things, do something somatic, eat some food. You know, use your senses, touch things, go pet your cat or dog or mm-hmm. pick up your baby. Do things that, you know, tap you back into your senses with your body. Because remember, when we're in that fight or flight or freeze state, we disconnect from those sensations because that's more adaptive. We can get injured and keep fighting or running or not feel that pain. And so the more you tap into body sensations, the more you come back out of that response. And so I've got clients that will have something uh, that they carry with them that they can touch, you mm-hmm. know, like a rock or something soft, like a rabbit's foot or whatever. That's just tangible, right? They can just yep. touch it and go, okay, I'm, I'm here. I'm on planet earth. This is real. Right. Or people listen to their favorite music or mm-hmm. I have actually people that will carry around something that is a little scent or a smell that they really like. They can just open up a little vial of or whatever and smell it and just remind themselves, Okay, I'm I'm okay. I, yeah. You know, just just engaging any of those senses. It's amazing how engaging the five senses can absolutely shift you right out of that state. And people just they just don't know. You know, they just don't know that that's that they can even do that. That's an option. Yeah. So there we have. It. There's some great ways on how to pull yourself out of fight, flight, or freeze. This is one of those things where if you're struggling to figure this out, you can even go into therapy in a controlled setting, practice working on you know, engaging with some of these triggers and learning to self-soothe, pull yourself back into your window of tolerance in a controlled environment. And that really brings us to our next topic of, hey, what happens if as soon as I'm triggered, I go to fight or flight like in two seconds and we just don't even have time to work on stuff. I'm constantly going here. And so this gets broken down into two sections. One, which is there might be some trauma because trauma is very somatic based and your brain's essentially remembering a past experience and doing everything it can to not allow that experience to happen again in the future. And we're not just talking trauma like someone in front of me got blown up in a war. We're talking any of these things that our brain thinks would lead to extreme pain, whether it's rejection or physical pain or emotional pain. So that's, that's one thing we have to look at. And we'll briefly talk on that. That's probably a topic again for a different day. And then the second thing we want to work on is increasing that window of tolerance, essentially building up stamina for the brain and the kind of things you can do to calm it down. So let's, let's jump into this first one, trauma. Um, Adam, when you are working with a client and let's say you're doing normal 
type therapy, talk therapy. Yeah. Where, what are some of the signs you're looking for that say, hey, my client probably is experiencing trauma and talk therapy alone isn't going to be enough here. We probably need to do trauma work. Well, I, sometimes if I notice a fight, flight, or freeze response, especially when they're alone in session, so it's not, there's no other person that's triggering them in the moment. It's like a memory or an experience. Sometimes it's just a word that I will say or even something that they will say or remember. And pretty soon they're trailing off. They're a little bit lost of where we were going. Or I, I will often see clients grab a pillow and they'll suddenly start hugging the pillow really tight and they don't notice it at all. Mm-hmm. They grab the pillow or they will sort of close off physically. I watch their arms sort of tighten up around their chest and they're... Their whole body get you know starts to collapse. I'm looking for physical signs that the person that the body is responding in a way that's you know unexpected based on what's occurring in the moment, kind of thing. That that would be one example. Okay, yeah, I think that's good. I think another thing I noticed too, outside of the actual therapy room, is clients will come in and report it. They'll say, "Hey, we've been working on not taking things personal that my spouse has said, but." Anytime they bring up this topic, it's just like in two seconds, I'm in rage. Right. And I'm like, okay, we've talked about this in therapy 10 times or five times or three times. Or you, you're coming in after doing two years of cognitive behavioral therapy and you said this behavior is not changing. Right. Then I'm going to see that's probably a sign that we need to be moving into that space of There's unresolved trauma, trauma right? Yeah. It's, and that's one thing we look at is a trigger is anytime we're disproportionately responding to something and we can't control it. This is just something that happens. Usually I know there's some type of trauma and the prefrontal cortex is not connecting to this memory or this behavior pattern. It's completely disconnected from it. And they're going through this without even being able to engage that. So talking about it and looking for insight to change the behavior no longer is working. It's usually a sign of going into uh, treatment protocol like EMDR, which stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing, or um, what is it, internal systems therapy, internal family internal systems. family systems, or what are some of our other trauma modalities? We're talking like uh, yoga, exposure therapy, for exposure example. therapy, mindfulness, right? And these are some of these things too, where that moves into our next topic of like, how do we work on? actually increasing our window of tolerance. And we know that, unluckily, the world we live in now with you know Netflix and Facebook and constant gratification we constantly can change instantly actually triggers that fight or flight response more and more and more. And we're, in a way, losing our ability to stay in our window of tolerance. And so some of these exercises where we have people or clients doing are things that we just naturally did 15 years ago. 15 years ago, we'd show up to some church function or work meeting early, we'd just kind of sit in our car and stare at the trees or go outside and just pay attention to people around us. And we just have this opportunity to calm down. Now we show up and we instantly pull up our phone and start answering emails or buying things on Amazon because prime shipping is fantastic. (laughs) Yes, it is. That's right. (laughs) And so we've lost some of these tools. So what we find that really works well are things like consistent exercise and daily routine. We find that those things are really helpful for calming down the brain, pulling people out of those fight or flight states also, and just building resiliency for the brain. We specifically know that mindfulness meditation is very helpful. It changes the way the brain functions over time. It can activate that prefrontal cortex and deescalate how reactive the limbic system is. So if people are interested in that, they can just 
go to a search engine and type mindfulness meditation and they'll get an infinity of videos and blog posts and, and information right. on that. And maybe we can come back and do an episode in the future all on mindfulness meditation. Yeah. I think that'd be fantastic because there is, uh, you know, some guidelines we give to people when they're trauma based on their ability to tolerate body sensations and things like that. And there might be need to be some safety building mindfulness at the beginning that really takes people away from what's inside their body and just teaches them to be present in the mind of focus. Um, we know that like mindful movement practices like yoga. So we're not talking gym yoga where they're like, hey, 10 more lunges now. We're talking that type of yoga. There are more traditional practices like Ashtanga yoga and Hatha yoga, where there's a big focus on the breath, a focus on really paying attention to the body, its limitations, and connecting with the body. Um, we know that Tai Chi and Jiu Jitsu and other things like that also have been shown through studies and very minimal studies compared to yoga. We reference yoga most because that's where a lot of the research has been done, and there's a lot of theorizing that these other mindful movement practices will create the same benefit. But again, here, here you hear these movements or these practices or exercises that bring us back to the body and to the here and now that take us away from uh, the trigger triggering situation and whatever other things are happening in our life. Well, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, in a Western culture, this hasn't been always uh, something that people have been paying attention to or aware of. It feels like we have borrowed so much from Eastern cultures that have been around a lot longer and have figured out a lot of things. Maybe they didn't have the scientific research backing why these things work, but for, for those of us who are in this particular culture, we need to hear a study with certain percentages and things in there to, <laughs> to be able to believe that it's real. But we borrow so much from these Eastern cultures that, like I said, have been around forever and have got, you know, have figured out ways of managing all of this stuff that we're just now, uh, at least many of us in a Western culture, I mean, I never, no one ever said anything to me about yoga growing up. Nobody ever, I never even heard the word mindfulness until I became a therapist. None of that mm -hmm. stuff, you know, at best people would say count to 10, you know, or whatever, yeah. or just go, just go blow off some steam. I mean, that, that was the best you've got. So I feel like we're, we're coming into a place now here in the Western cultures where more and more people are becoming aware of Eastern practices that are super cool, have amazing results and have been around forever. We just didn't know about them. Yeah, and I theorize that pre-World War II, pretty much our whole country lived out on farms, and we were all having these mindful experiences all day long as we fed cows and planted stuff. and <laughs> Had your bare feet in the dirt and just kind Yeah, of it's kind of that post-World War II era where you start seeing anxiety and depression really becoming documented in our culture. And maybe it existed before, and we were awful at documenting it, but you really see more of a shift as time has gone on. We've sit around in office chairs all day. Yeah, and we really do. We just sit in chairs all day. But yeah. fortunately, we at least have windows in all of our rooms, so <clears throat> so we get we get sunlight for those of us, you know, who are therapists, but yeah, I mean, getting outside, it's funny, it makes a huge difference just to I walk outside and I go, "Oh, the sun, you yeah. know, air." <laughs> yeah, nature in a way is forced mindfulness. I try and get a lot of my clients to go out into nature, and a lot of them will say when I'm in nature, so much of my stresses in the world just right. melt away. All right, so we know these are some really basic ways to get out of fight or flight, some really basic strategies. If we can sum it up again, it comes to can we stop the interaction, go do something else, come back to it later, and uh, 
How, and then working on building that resiliency. And again, with anything discussed here on Pocket Therapist, remember these are short episodes that give you the foundation. If you get jammed up anywhere, talk to people you trust, your therapist or whoever else you're working with to help your emotional well-being. And it will be great, great um, starting point for you. And I think, you know, we're certainly open to questions for follow-up episodes in the future. And so if people have specific individual questions about anything that's been talked about, you know, send them via email or social media. There's lots of ways to get a hold of us. And uh, like we've done in past episodes, we will answer your questions to the best of our ability and uh, go from there. Thanks so much for uh, for being here, Dan. I'm super excited to have you in future episodes. And yeah, my uh, pleasure. We will talk to everyone soon. And as always, uh, please, it would be such a kind gesture of you to provide a uh, a rating for the podcast, a, a review, and tell your friends about it because that's how we get the word out. Thanks so much.